Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at fifty to eighty percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 12. Silver and Opals. Where was Dumbledore and what was he doing? Harry caught sight of the headmaster only twice over the next few weeks. He rarely appeared at meals anymore, and Harry was sure Hermione was right in thinking that he was leaving the school for days. I'm Casper Turkile. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. There's a little town in New England that when it was founded was called Newtown, but today is known as Cambridge. Do you know what people from Cambridge are called? <gasps> this is my favorite word. Canterbridgian. Yes. Isn't that a fabulous word? I think it is so snobbish and obnoxious. It's perfect for Cambridge. I know. So if you are a Canterbridgian or near Canterbridgian. Adjacent Canterbridgian. <laughs> then you should go to our Cambridge, Massachusetts, not UK, local group, which is hosted by Judith Giller Linewall. And because it's the original group, it doesn't have a fancy name. It has original group status. Judith was with us from the very beginning and is a fabulous sacred reading leader. So come join her or any other local group by going to harrypottersacredtext.com forward slash groups. And make sure if you haven't yet to join our fantastic Don't Be a Dursley campaign. And thank you so, so much to everybody who's supported it so far. All of the money is going to go to Raices, which is a nonprofit organization that aims to provide legal services for immigrants in Texas. Join us in not being a Dursley. Vanessa, it's your turn to tell a story. What have you got for us? So my grandmother, she was a remarkable woman. She was from Slovakia, which is one of the first places 
that the Nazis came and were rounding people up. So she escaped to Hungary and sort of hid in plain sight. And she was young. She was like 15 or 16 years old and left home to like have a chance at surviving and, you know, move to a foreign country. Because she had false documents, she got picked up by the SS much earlier than other Hungarian Jews. And so she spent over three years in Auschwitz. Oh, my God. Then she survived a death march. Then after the war, she got sent to Brussels, um, another place she'd never been. And then she moved to Paris. And then she moved to Israel. And then she moved back to Paris. And then she moved to Los Angeles, where in all of that time, she had two miscarriages and three children. And then in Los Angeles, you know, my mom was born and they were trying to set up their family life in Glendale. And she got a job at a factory. And my grandfather got a job as a busboy. And one day my grandfather came home and announced that he had gotten a promotion. He was going to be a waiter, not a busboy, and that my grandmother should quit her job. And she did. And shortly after she quit her job, she woke up one morning and couldn't get out of bed. She had debilitating vertigo where she couldn't, like, walk to the bathroom by herself. And my family's read on this is basically a story of resilience, that she just functioned and functioned and functioned for as long as she had to. And then when she was given the opportunity to relax, her body was just like, stay down. I've always been touched by that read on what happened. The things she lost are unimaginable. And in fact, we even have a DVD of her being interviewed by the Shoah Foundation. And I I have it and I cannot get myself to watch it because I know just from little things how horrific what she survived was. But she didn't just survive it. She then, like, raised her kids and moved countries and, like, was, like, helping survive in really intricate ways until she didn't have to. I just think that that is one very extreme version of what resilience is. It is doing what you have to do for as long as you have to do it. I think that we see that exact same kind of resilience in Leanne where she is sobbing. She is clearly incredibly impacted by what has happened, and yet she is, like, still going to go to McGonagall and share all the information. She's still going to make sure that she's functioning. And I just think that resilience has nothing to do with grace. It has nothing to do with keeping a stiff upper lip. It is about going forward. And I think that we just, we see several examples of that in this chapter where people are moving on and going forward, even though they are put in situations where that is not what they should have to do. This is so interesting, Vanessa. And my goodness, every time I hear one of your family stories or or any story from the Holocaust, it is just, my God, I can't even begin to think about it. And it's a really interesting take on resilience, that that kind of pushing forward image. Because I think the way I think about resilience is like, it's like a springiness in your full back that then allows you to kind of come back in one piece, or at least you're not brittle. I think that's the kind of opposite that I think of. And so in some ways, I think about your grandmother's story of like, pushing on because she had to, because her survival and her children's survival depended on it. And then as you said, like the moment when it wasn't 
however we think about it psychologically or spiritually, like something came through and was allowed to come through. Did she ever recover from that? She did. Oh, that's interesting. She was in bed for about a year. So for me, that's maybe where the resilience is, is in the coming back, I think. I totally understand that instinct. And I love your metaphor of resilience being about bouncing back. But the metaphor I have is like of walking into the wind. Mm. Like it's just pushing forward, even though the world wants you on your back. And she just pushed forward and pushed forward and only laid down when she was, like, cordially invited to. Mm. And then it's just luck that she got well again to me. But I think that was about something else. Yeah, I think we're going to have to come up with a 100 different metaphors for how resilience works and how do we know when it is resilience. So perhaps that's the question we can bring to this chapter together. Vanessa, I want to cordially invite you. To a 30-second recap. Okay. Why don't you go first? (laughs) Are you ready? Yes, indeed. On your mark. Get set. Go. So Harry's wondering if Hogsmeade is still happening because, you know, Voldemort's back. But turns out, sure. Um, And there's like little tests as you leave. And Ron is like, why are you checking us as we leave? Because why would I bring dark things back into the world? Anyway, um, Harry is like, this wind is cold. The sleet is intense. It's also October. So this is unseasonal weather, which I think we should note. And then Mundungus is um, caught like selling some of um, black silverware. And then um, all sorts of stress happens as they walk back because Katie Bell picks up this necklace, but she's confounded and it's bad. Attack. Okay, Vanessa, that was a partial telling of what happened. Why don't you help us remember the rest? I thought that was great. (laughs) 30 seconds on the clock. Three, two, one, go. So a couple of the things that I would mention are that um, Harry gets Hagrid's help um, to, like, carry Katie. And, like, it's so windy and just so confusing that Hagrid can't even hear Harry. And then they get back to the castle and McGonagall interviews everybody who was there. And Leanne is sobbing, but, like, tells the story anyway. And um, Harry picks up the thing with the paper and knows not to touch it. And um, and everybody is really upset and worried about Katie. Also, he can't let go of his Draco theory. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> I seriously did think about mentioning that in my 30-second recap. And I was like, I'm bored of recapping it. <laughs> I love that every chapter there's someone else that Harry tries to tell it to. And it's like, maybe this person will believe me. And hopefully at this point, right, people will be like, oh, Harry's been right all the time with everything. Except the serious in the Department of Mysteries thing. He happens to be right here, which must be very frustrating for him. But I mean, should we talk about this with resilience? This is an example of idiotic resilience. (laughs) Of an idea being resilient, and it shouldn't be. (laughs) I just think resilience is so interesting because I think that a lot of conversations over the last 10 years or so have been about how we have to build grit and resilience in our young people. Yeah. And that it's like one of the like strongest identifiers of success, et cetera. Which is about like when you encounter a difficulty, being able to kind of find a different route forward or sticking with a task, even though it's not pleasurable for a little minute because it's going to give you rewards in the end. Yes. Except that we are also in the era of scams, right? Mm. Of like fire festival and multi-level marketing schemes and all sorts of people being very resilient and gritty and like moving forward on things that are just made up. Mm. And I just think it's so interesting that these two cultural phenomena are happening simultaneously and that we can't separate the two. 
And I just think resilience is one of those things that only hindsight can tell if you're being resilient or you're being stubborn. Are you being resilient or obsessive, resilient or pathologically unhealthy? Mm. And so Harry is only saved by the fact that he happens to be right. I mean, he's more fixated, I think, than resilient in some way. Because can I dig into this definition of resilience? Because the way I think about it was that metaphor of kind of doing something, it failing, you fall back, but then you're kind of return to the coalface, as it were. But I hear in your definition something that's more progressive or it's about like step forward, you keep taking a step forward. Can you help me understand how how you're thinking of it? Yeah, I would just say with Harry, I think Harry meets your definition of resilience. Mm -hmm. The thing he wants is to get Draco and he will try any theory and he gets knocked down and he's like, okay, it wasn't the necklace, but he gets right back up again. Yeah, and he's like, well, I tried telling Arthur, oh, that didn't work. I tried telling McGonagall, that didn't work. But he keeps coming back. He keeps coming back. But I don't think our metaphors are actually at odds with one another. I think every second is an opportunity to quit something hard. Mm. And so you don't need to be entirely pushed down in order for it to be resilience. Mm. What I think is so interesting about Harry and his continual offering of this theory is that it kind of represents his willingness to be laughter in public. I mean, when, when we think about early books, Harry, he's so tentative and he's so private, right? One of the big moves that we see over the narrative of the six books is that he's willing to share his cause and willing to not think of himself, even though at this point he's the chosen one, he's really clear that that is both true and not true at the same time. And so I love that he's actually being willing to expose himself in this theory over and over again, because I think it does show resilience. I think it it shows his willingness to be made fun of nearly in order to keep doggedly pursuing what he thinks is right. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I mean, I want to counter by saying it's an obsession, except that he is right. And so I think he is entirely absolved by the fact that he's right. But what would happen if he was wrong? And, and I think that's what I love about your point is that we actually don't know if it's foolhardiness or resilience until after the fact. There's just no way to know until it's done, <laughs> which, is, which is hard. But if we go back to, I mean, your grandmother's story, I would characterize it nearly as endurance, like that, that she somehow was strong enough or was able to keep going, as you said, until the point where she was invited to not go. And I think it's important to say that it isn't a moral judgment, right? Mm -hmm. Because for a lot of people, that would have been more than they could bear. And and for a lot of people, it was more than they could bear. Or more than they chose to want to Mm. do, right? Mm. I mean, I think that that is an entirely moral choice to be like, I don't want to live in this world, right? And like, again, my grandmother was quote unquote proven right because she was freed, but she had no reason to To believe believe that politically that would happen, tactically that would happen, and that she would survive long enough for that to happen. I just think that we can look back on it and see it as endurance, but like she did get up every morning. I think that there were many moments of being knocked down and getting Oh, and that bouncing back happening on a much shorter timeline, like each morning was a moment to, oh, that's interesting. Like I think she did it again and again and again, Mm. right? I, I guess like, you know, I used to run long distances, and they call it endurance running, but it does feel more like resilience because every three minutes, I'm like, can I quit now? And I'm like, nope. 
And it's a choice again and again and again. And so I think resilience and endurance from the outside can look really similar. Mm. But when you're actually in the body of it, you are keenly aware that you can quit at any moment and that there are moments in which you want to quit. And so it feels more like resilience than endurance. Okay, this is interesting because this is now taking me back to the to the moments that we've identified where Dumbledore says to Harry, yes, I want you to share this information with Ron and Hermione. Because one of the characteristics of resilience in an ecosystem is about essentially kind of relational networks, right? Like plants that are symbiotic with one another that can essentially handle greater toxicity levels rather than, you know, an ecosystem of just a, a monocrop, right? If you have one field of everything is the same and there's one bug that eats that particular plant, then your whole field is gone, right? So is there something here about, and I wonder either in your experience of running or perhaps even in your grandmother's story, was there something of that kind of relational or, or an interconnection element that supported that resilience, do you think? In running, it's only pride. I, <laughs> like That's it. And stubbornness. My grandmother has remarkable stories or had remarkable stories. She's passed away of the friendships that she made in the camps. I mean, she met my grandfather, um, her husband of almost 60 years in Auschwitz. And then there was a woman um, named Anne who for years I thought that they were actually sisters. My grandmother would introduce her as her sister. Mm. And they were, um, they survived the death march together. She, her, her friend Anne, and then I think it was her sister, they would walk arms linked and the one in the middle would sort of sleepwalk and the two on the outside would hold her up. And then they would rotate. And so I think that, you know, there absolutely was like a relational aspect to their survival. I just, that image is so, it's more than I can feel even. It's, oh. Best not to think about. Best not to think about it. And yet also we should think about it. I don't know. I'm dead inside on these topics. Well, I mean, in some ways, right, like that's one way to handle it is like, we actually can't engage it all the time. And I, I feel like that's some of the gallows humor that we're starting to see in the books, right? That moment when Ron asks about the newspaper, anyone we know died today, right? Like That is resilient. That is resilient. It's like it's one way to handle the overwhelming enormity of the horror of what has happened or what is happening. We, we, ha we have to turn it into something else in order just to make it through. I don't really ever engage with my grandparents' stories in real ways because I think think it would a little bit kill me. Yeah, it would be too much. Yeah. I can, I can only imagine. I'm like, I'm the reporter. Well, and actually this shows up in this chapter. If we think about this cursed necklace, right, that Katie, who we learn later has, you know, it's been controlled by someone who's put a spell on her. The reason why she survives this attack is she's wearing gloves and only a tiny little tear in the glove allows her finger to touch the necklace. If it had been any more, certainly if she put it on her body elsewhere, it would have killed her. And so there's something there, I think, about this kind of generational trauma or these stories or the reality even of the world today. Like if we felt the whole necklace of suffering that the world is right now, it would be too much. We could not stand it. And yet Katie is able to come back because she's she's just had a tiny, tiny little tear of a glove that she's been able to touch. And even that sent her into this, you know, she had to go to hospital. That's a really beautiful metaphor. 
Can I use it as an excuse to talk about her amazing friend, Leanne? I love Leanne. Leanne is, like shows up in this chapter out of nowhere and steals the show. I know. I know. So we were just talking about Gallo's humor, just humor in general as a form of resilience. But I think that Leanne shows sobbing through something as a kind of resilience. She could say, like... Harry saw it too. I don't want to talk about it and like run away. Yeah. And she doesn't. Even though she is completely emotionally falling apart, she is just so dutiful mm. in making sure that like medically she can share all of the necessary information. And I just think that it is a form of like heroic resilience that she is able to hold herself together well enough. And she's doing both of what we were talking about. She is feeling all of her feelings while resiliently doing what she needs to do. And that is just an incredible feat of strength and friendship. Mm. I think we really see that at the end of the chapter when McGonagall has kind of finished with that second category of, right, I've got all the information I need. She sends her on her own to go to Madame Pomfrey. And if we, I mean, just think back two or three books, like we would never have sent a student alone through the corridors of Hogwarts to find their own medical care, having witnessed this kind of horrific attack. And yet that's what Leanne has to do and is able to do, which again, I don't want to make that a moral judgment, but it shows some sort of resilience, like some, some stamina, some capacity to endure which I just thought of that as a as a mirror to what we would have expected, you know, certainly in book one or two. And yet here she is walking the corridors on her own, having having just witnessed this. And we know that according to the logic of Dumbledore, Leanne is a hero, right? Yeah. Because Dumbledore says that it, it takes a certain kind of bravery to stand up to your enemies, but an exceptional form of bravery to stand up to your friends. She's so a sort of Neville. He, she is a Neville. She is fighting Katie. She doesn't understand that Katie is imperious. It does not occur to her that one of the unforgivable curses is like around. And so she is fighting her friend and then physically fighting yeah. her friend and standing up to a friend that directly, like, That is an incredible form of bravery, and I think that she is like an absolute hero in this chapter. I mean, the other thing that that struck me was it is Hagrid who comes to sort of rescue her. And for me, it was just this premonition of how we're going to see Hagrid carry Harry's body at the end of book seven. I could just see him kind of like leaping, you know, with his enormous strides on the way to Hogwarts carrying this young woman. Just that that mother energy that Hagrid always has from the beginning of the books is, is here as well. Yeah, I was very touched by him not being able to hear Harry's voice on the wind. Say more on that, yeah. I think that part of what was remarkable about it to me was that it was the f- one of the first times that the height difference between Hagrid yeah. and Harry actually felt like an impediment. And there's just something so reverential to me about mm-hmm. the idea that Hagrid has to bend down in order to hear this child and that Harry is so often not believed and Hagrid bends down and believes the first thing he says and runs. It was just a very touching series of moments here. Yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Okay, Vanessa, let's look at another moment in this chapter, which I just really love this. Harry is obsessed, right, with his with his potions textbook. <laughs> and I love this image of him, like, putting it up on his knees as he's in bed and, like, leafing through it and finding all of these extra secrets and jinxes and hexes, as well as the potions. Are you also picturing it as a romance novel? I mean... That he just, like, can't put down because <laughs> he's in love with this prince. For me, it was more like, like um, someone who's found a map to treasure. Like, there's this kind of homemade creative vibe in it, right? Because it's all marginalia, if we uh, think about yeah. it. And so he discovers a new jinx, and it's Levy Corpus. I, I mean, this is like someone discovering a weapon being like, let's see what happens. <laughs> I mean, he's not even thinking of Ron or looking at Ron. But anyway, he commands the spell, and Ron is like shot up into the sky, hanging by his ankle. And he was asleep. And I, I mean, I would be furious, first of all, and terrified. But Ron, after he kind of falls down when he's released by the magic, that's... <laughs> This incredible response, which is, tomorrow I'd rather you set the alarm clock. Which to me was like, wow, that is a resilient reaction to something like this. Because, of course, their friendship is strong enough that he knows there's no intention. But at the same time, there's enough friction here now for that to start to be tested. And I, I just wondered what you made of that moment. First of all, you and I share a room sometimes when we travel. If you ever did anything like that to me. And I trust you and I love you and I assume good intentions in you. I would not make a joke. <laughs> I would be so scared. I think my initial reaction would be shock and fear. Like I would not have the wherewithal, even if I wasn't angry, which I would be, to say something as hilarious as wrong. No, it is incredible. I also, I think that this gets to the heart of a lot of things about Ron. He grew up with Fred and George where, like, things were happening and he's like, what? He's always felt safe. So I don't think he goes into this, like, I'm threatened place quite easily. Oh, interesting. So I do think all of that. And I think it's incredible resilience and humor and just, like, graciousness. 
I also think that this speaks to the fact that Hogwarts does not give a proper liberal arts education (laughs) because I only had to take Latin for a year. But I would have a vague sense as to what Levy Corpus was. I would probably be scared that I was going to raise the dead. But um, Can you imagine? But, like, I just think it's so strange. Well, it's his reckless streak. Yeah. And that's both why he's such an incredible wartime leader, but I think why he is not suited to be a professor, right? I always have this vision of Hermione becoming headmistress because she is the epitome of responsible, precise, diligent, caregiving, magical excellence. You know what I mean? And Harry has this creative, reckless, magical style, which works really well in some situations. But as you say, he could have raised an army of zombies on a Saturday morning. (laughs) And then what was he going to do? They're not going to say tomorrow I'd rather use an alarm clock. (laughs) So Casper, I just have one last question for you, which is, why is Filch still at Hogwarts? (laughs) Umbridge revealed to us that Filch really likes child abuse and that it wasn't just talk, but he's like into it. And I respect wanting to keep a squib employed and housed, but it really bothers me that he is the one checking people's bags and stuff in and out of Hogwarts. Because he does not have an aligned sense of, like, what should and shouldn't be brought into the school. And so I'm wondering if we think that this is resilience on his part, that every time he is degraded, he just, like, gets back up. Or if we think it's something else, my guess is that it's many things. But why? Why? (laughs) I mean, the first answer that comes into my mind is that there's just a serious shortage of staff. I mean, the way in which Dumbledore has to go and recruit Slughorn seems to me just to be an illustration of the challenge. And I mean, who else is going to know how all the staircases work, right? That's like not the kind of training you can get covered in three months. And who has the time to train new staff at this point? <laughs> so you're just like, he's not resilient. It's just ineffective leadership. Yeah. Dumbledore's I, like brain power is certainly elsewhere. I mean, he's physically absent a lot, right? That we, we really see that in this chapter. I mean, maybe this has nothing to do with resilience and maybe this is just me hating Felch. Well, or is it like part of the way that we get resilient is to allow in a little bit of the disease so that our bodies get used to it, right? Like I'm also seeing a parallel with Mundungus within the order, right? We see Mundungus stealing Sirius's silver, selling it on the open market, And that has been condoned from the beginning, what we're told, because it's strategic, because he has contacts, right? His relationships in the kind of magical underworld, and that's useful for the order. But there is something about, like, give yourself a little bit of the virus so that you are going to be ready. You know how to fight it when the actual attack comes. I love that theory. I don't totally buy it when it comes to Felch. (laughs) Nor should you. (laughs) But I also do like the idea of thinking about Mundungus as resilient. You know, we've been talking a lot about not wanting to make a moral judgment on resilience. And I think Mundungus is a perfect button to put on that Mm. because who is more resilient than Mundungus and who is less admirable, right? (laughs) And so, like, Leanne's resilience, gorgeous, amazing, just bravery embodied. Mundungus's is the resilience of a cockroach. Well, that's what I was going to say. I immediately went to kind of more ecological examples because the most resilient animals are often the ones that we like the least 
about the super effective kind of ecological specimen. Yeah, I, I think we've touched on this a few times, right? That like, I don't want to condemn people who aren't resilient in the face of certain things. I think it is okay to be broken by certain things yeah. and to say, do you know what world? That was too much. I want to stay down. Yeah. And that there's actually something very human about that in saying, this is not something that I want to endure. This is not something I want to survive. This is not something that I think I should survive, right? And we, I think that we've evolved a lot on no longer wanting to use fighting language for cancer. Right. right? You know who I think of in that metaphor is Karkarov in book four. Right. As his death mark is coming back on his arm, he's like, no, yeah. I don't want to do this. I'm going to run. Like that is such a legitimate response of like, I just can't. And I think there can often be something dignified about, mm. you know, giving in. I don't want to say giving up. Just saying, like, this is not a thing that I can fight. Like, there's just something about choosing your battles. Yeah. And and so I think that I'm glad that we're ending with Mundungus because I think we're having a clear example of when resilience is not a virtue. Yeah. It is something that I think can be really virtuous. And I think that it is something that can be used as, like, just a brutal form of animalistic survival mm-hmm. that actually denigrates our humanity. Yeah. Vanessa, we're continuing with our Chavruta practice. And so I want to take you into the text. And the moment I'm choosing is where Slughorn once again tries to get Harry to join the Slug Club. He's already missed three meetings. And Hermione has been going and has kind of been enjoying them. And I, I want you to read this. They're not that bad, you know. They're even quite fun sometimes. But then she caught sight of Ron's expression. Oh, look, they've got deluxe sugar quills. So my question to you in this Chavruta practice is, what is it about the Slug Club that is changing Hermione's mind? Like, what is she enjoying about being part of the Slug Club? So the answer that I have is that she's just excellent at what she does, right? She's really smart. And I think she likes being among other people who have developed excellence in something. I say this because I remember it was a revelation for me when I was 17 And I was doing Model United Nations. And I was like, oh, this is something I'm good at. I'd never been really good at something before. Like, I enjoyed things. And, like, I remember being really sad when I was 14 and I realized that I wasn't good at being an actor. Like, I just sucked at playing other people. Because I had really banked on that. I was like, well, that's where, like, the creative kind of gay people are in high school, right? Like, I'll be a theater kid. And I was just like, oh, Bummer. Like, that's not my road. So then what? And Model United Nations is just by chatting and making meaning out of nothing, which is turns out something I enjoy and I'm good at. So I think Hermione's finding that. And in a way where she's not annoying or being laughed at, right, as, as in a classroom experience where people make fun of her for her hand being raised. But this is a place where excellence and passion and kind of geekery maybe are rewarded. I mean, I resonate very much with your story. I loved the first moments in my life where I got to stop pretending that I cared about being cool and just was like, (laughs) nope, I'm super curious and I want to ask all the questions. But I don't trust that the slug club is actually full of excellent people Mm. because it's full of like, quote unquote, important people, children of beautiful people, et cetera. So that is my resistance to your theory. And so what I would say is that 
Hogwarts is not great at social gatherings. Mm. This is an opportunity for her to hang out with people from other houses. She's only ever in the Gryffindor common room. She's not involved in any extracurricular activities. (laughs) That's so true. The boys both have Quidditch, but she really only has these two friends. And then she is very good at socializing with other people. She like very much has her ear to the grindstone on who's dating whom and who might be having these feelings. And she certainly has like a better sense of who is at Hogwarts than Ron or Harry do, who are just like busy being self-obsessed. So I think that she might genuinely appreciate some time where she's not the chosen one's best friend. She's not part of the trio, but she gets to be in this totally different social setting. I am so compelled by that because I think back again to the Triwizard Tournament, and she's the one who develops this relationship with Crumb. We know there's growing feelings towards Ron in this whole book, but maybe she's also like, finally, I get to meet some other people. I think that the boys take up a lot of her emotional energy. She has to be like saving their lives from very early on and being like, no, you cannot ride that broom that most likely someone an escaped prisoner sent you. And like she has to be spending so much energy taking care of these two incredibly needy young men. And they have Rune's homework. <laughs> right. And like they are at Quidditch practice, so she doesn't have to worry about them. And she gets to like have a date night <laughs> away from her kids. I love spending time with Peter more than anything. Like it's my favorite thing to do is just to like sit on the couch with him. But he is in a choir that meets on Tuesday nights. And so the fact that there is one night a week that he's busy means like that is the night that's easiest for me sort of emotionally to make social plans and like just not have to have a moment of being like, but I'm giving up a night with Peter. And like, obviously, I prioritize my friendships and I do still see friends on nights that Peter is not busy. But there's something so freeing about not having to make that emotional bargain. And so the fact that Harry doesn't like it and instead goes to Quidditch practice, it's like, well, Ron is babysat. To bring it back to resilience in a way, this this helps her stay fresh and engaged in her relationship with the with the boys because she has this other place that also serves her needs, which I think one of the ways in which we stay resilient in our primary relationships is that we don't need everything to be met in that one core relationship. And I mean, that's an interesting way to think about the trio is actually as a throuple. Obviously, it's not a sexual relationship, but there's, there's something very deep at a soul level between these three that I think will stay with them for the rest of their life. And so it's important for each of them to have something outside. You know, Ron has his family. Harry has his relationships with Sirius and then Dumbledore and, you know. And Voldemort. And here we have Hermione, you know, not just dentistry conferences. (laughs) I think that the other thing is, is that this gathering of students, even if it is students who aren't necessarily like the brightest and therefore stimulating her intellectually, They are who they are in a different context. Yeah, that's true. And sometimes it's just so fun to see somebody who you're like, ugh, you're Zabini, you're that Slytherin who's like known for the good looking mom. And then it's like, oh, when Slughorn is around and you have like crudite in your hand, you can actually be quite charming. Right. And you have this fabulous interest in birding. Yeah. Right. And so I think that there is also potentially, and obviously we haven't been in this room yet. And so I don't know, but I think that sometimes it's just so fun to see people out of the context that you are used to seeing them in. Uh, I'm totally convinced by this. Yes. 
Well, I think that the answer is all of our answers. <laughs> Thanks, Vanessa. Thank you for that great Havruta question. This week's voicemail is from Annie. Hey, Vanessa and Casper. My name is Annie, and I am a fairly new listener. I just listened to Book 4, Chapter 21 on the theme of faith. I actually laughed because at the end of the episode, you mentioned skydiving and having faith in the jump. And I'm actually a certified skydiver. I have about 100 jumps under my belt. And when people ask me what it's like, my answer is always, it is the most faithful sport and has made me a more faithful person. There are many small acts of faith all over in skydiving, and that has shown me faith in other areas of my life. When you first learn to skydive, you have to put all your trust in strangers. They check your gear, which is a life-saving act. And one particular act that stood out to me happened just last week. Someone packed a jumper's parachute, but it malfunctioned, and he had to cut away the parachute and pull his emergency one. And in that moment, he said he thought he might die. He was emotional when he got to the ground, and the packer felt devastated. But the jumper went up to him and told him to pack the parachute again, and the skydiver got on the next plane to jump. He had faith in the packer even after this malfunction. He knew the packer was always looking out for his best interest and did not mean to make any mistakes. And I learned that having faith, even when something goes wrong, is a brave thing to do. We see this a lot in Harry, having faith in Ron despite him leaving in the seventh book. We see it with Snape and we see it with Neville. No wonder Harry's in Gryffindor. Having faith in those around you, no matter the mistakes, and seeing the good in people is one of the bravest things to do. So I want to offer a blessing to anyone who continues to take the jump of faith, no matter how little or how big it is. Thank you for this wonderful podcast. Keep doing what you're doing. Annie, thank you so much for that beautiful blessing. I think that all of the examples we see in the book are exactly that sort of right kind of faith, which is faith in good intentions and faith that people learn from their mistakes rather than a blind faith which makes me much less comfortable. But I really love the examples that you draw. And that story was really beautiful. So thank you so much for sharing it. Casper, it's now time for blessings. Who would you like to bless this week? This blessing is, as ever, with Malfoy, complicated. <laughs> but I want to bless Draco. We we hear amidst Harry's, you know, evening commitments um, that Draco also has already missed two deadlines in his classes. And it's, you know, we're into the halfway through the first term and his mission of killing Dumbledore is making slow progress. <laughs> it's not really a nice way to say that. But I, I feel for him. I just feel for him because just like Ginny has been this echo, certainly through book two of being mostly invisible, but so present to the purpose of the plot. That's Draco in this book, right? Like his whole arc is happening in the background and we... We only see these snippets of his struggle and his failing. And he, like Ginny, is completely alone and has this, perhaps in a slightly different way, this kind of threat of death hanging over him, but also this broader shame on his family that's hanging over him. I don't know. It's just a lot. It's a lot to handle. And I can imagine how anxious he is and how like, he's inept at the magic he needs to do. He, he can't do what his mission is. And so for anyone who is caught in a situation where they're like, I've not been trained on this software. I don't know how to handle this. Like, I'm with you. A blessing, a blessing for anyone who's kind of overwhelmed. How about you, Vanessa? I would like to bless Katie. Mm. Um, 
I think I want to bless her for having such a good friend. Like, mm. she is obviously someone we know that she's an incredibly reasonable person from the way that we just saw her interact with Harry a couple of chapters ago. She's a real leader. And I think that she has obviously built enough trust in this friendship where her friend feels comfortable confronting her and then feels such a loyalty to her that she is, like, willing to endure a great deal to try to protect her. And so I think I want to offer a blessing because this horrible thing happens to Katie, but the fact that she is like this wonderful person is going to follow her even into the sort of coma that she is in. Um, People are going to be fighting for her. And so just like, well done, Katie. I'm being so awesome that even a cursed necklace can't bring her down. Mm, Yeah. Blessings for Katie. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or join us there to chat with other listeners about this episode. We've now got over 1,500 people supporting us on Patreon. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for making this podcast possible. You can leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, or register for the next Harry Potter and the Sacred Text pilgrimage to England. A thanks to everyone who's contributed to our fundraiser for Raices. It is such important work and we're so proud of our community for showing up. And we also hope you might show up at one of our live shows. We're in D.C. on November 7th, Chicago on November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 13, The Secret Riddle Through the Theme of Superstition. And we are going to have Mike Schubert from Potterless, who we love. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is somebody who you might know as Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Chelsea Erson, and our music, as always, is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are a part of Night Vale Presents. We'd like to thank Annie for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thank you, and Casper, I will talk to you next week. Don't call before then. <laughs> I won't. To our Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yeah. Then you should come to our Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's maybe too much emphasis. (laughs) Your Cambridge. (laughs) Shut up. I'm not going down the giggle spiral. Nope. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.